Have you ever heard the Bible has hundreds of contradictions that clearly show it was written by fallible men and is not God's inspired word? Have you been confronted by a person pointing out something seemingly wrong with the Bible and you didn't know how to respond? Have you ever discovered what you think is a contradiction and didn't know what it really means? If that's the case, then you're listening to the right podcast. Just up ahead, alleged Bible contradictions on today's edition the Bible Questions Podcast. Welcome to the Bible Questions Podcast, brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to Bible Questions. My name is Jeff, and along with me is co-host Brian. How are you doing today? Hey, Jeff, doing very well. Look forward to this topic. Yes. And, you know, over the history of the Bible Questions website, you know, we've got a, a sizable number of questions related to, quote unquote, alleged Bible contradictions that either people have read about, heard about, discovered on their own. So I thought today we would sort of focus on these things. Now, Brian, so you want to go ahead and uh, introduce us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, through the centuries, Jeff, there's been a number of attacks that have been launched against the Bible as being God's inspired word for Christians. And if you think about why do people, you know, launch these attacks against the Bible? Well, really, if you kind of look into this, what you'll see is that it's primarily to discredit the Bible and create doubt in the minds of those who are professed believers. Also, you know, sometimes it's it's really to make room for their own alleged inspired religious works. So we recently had a two-part series on Islam. And for those that would justify the Quran and the Hadith, they will claim that the Bible has been corrupted over the years. And so they will look into parts of the Bible to try and discredit it as being genuine. And so, you know, there are really many different categories of attacks and one category of attacks focuses on alleged contradictions within the bible so in our podcast today what we want to be focusing on is this term contradictions to refer to some kind of internal inconsistency within the bible so this would be you know typically where you have two passages that say something that conflict with each other and, you know, just to clarify, we will not be addressing alleged discrepancies between the Bible and various archaeological or secular historical evidence, nor between the Bible and science, like, you know, with creation versus evolution. So, you know, you'll repeatedly hear us use this term alleged, meaning, you know, people are claiming these passages are inconsistent with each other. But claiming something, I think we would all agree, is not the same as proving it as we will see. So this tactic of pointing out alleged Bible contradictions is often used by non-religious people, you know, atheists, agnostics, or sometimes other religions as we just talked about Islam or, you know, other man-made religions. Uh, and at the end of the podcast, we're going to give you the ability to get the link to a website that has over 100 alleged contradictions and biblical answers and responses based on Bible facts, uh, if you care to look at more of those. But, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, even sometimes professing Christians, and I use that term Christians as quote-unquote, because, you know, there are some people today who claim to be Christians, but they will say, well, you know, the Bible is just a good guideline, but it's not meant to be taken literally. Or, you know, groups like the Mormons will make room for Joseph Smith's writings by, as we talked about earlier, claiming the Bible was corrupted. So therefore, there is this need for Latter-day Revelation. So those who are Christians need to be aware of these alleged contradictions and how to answer them. So that's really our goal today, to take a look at some of these alleged contradictions and help our listeners to understand why they are not in fact contradictions and give you the ability to answer these that people may bring up to you. So Jeff, before I turn it over to you, I'll just mention, you know, at our biblequestions.org website, uh, we've received a large number of questions over the years about some of these alleged contradictions. And, you know, we've been answering questions for almost 25 years now. 
And uh, I think you would agree, Jeff, that this is something that comes up frequently because, you know, sometimes people are just curious or maybe they're asked about it. But, you know, ultimately, once again, we want to just take a look and, of course, see why they are not, in fact, alleged contradictions. Yep, definitely agree with that, Brian. Yeah, in terms of the questions that, that I've answered and other staff members like you've answered, personally, just in, on my own hard drive, I've accumulated over uh, 230 answers. Now, some of them are repeated, you know, some are duplicated, but you know, those numbers uh, should give our listeners you know, some sense of both the number of alleged contradictions that are out there in circulation, uh, as well as the number of people who have encountered them, and then of course contacted us for you know clarification. So I think you know, given hundreds of potential you know alleged contradictions, I thought what we would do for today for our listeners is kind of give them a sampling, you know, kind of a, a brief sampling of some of the more popular uh, alleged contradictions that we've received. Uh, we've picked uh, a sampling of five from the Old Testament, five from the New Testament. And so once we kind of, Brian and I kind of ping pong through those, uh, we'll follow that up with some typical sources for these alleged contradictions and, and why people th think uh, there are contradictions when in reality there's not. And then we'll also provide some uh, how-to practical uh, advice or, or guidelines, if you will, uh, on how to approach the Bible to uh, relatively easily resolve these kinds of things. Then, of course, once we get at the very end, you know, we'll conclude with uh, suggestions of material at our website uh, for your further state. Okay, so let's dive right in. And the first one that we want to consider is from the Old Testament. And one, you know, contradiction that we often are asked about was what was created first, animals or man? And the reason that, that question is asked is because you know, when you look at Genesis chapter 1 versus Genesis chapter 2, it's easy for people to allege that, you know, hey, Genesis chapter 1 shows this order of creation. Genesis chapter 2 has a completely different order of creation. That seems to be a contradiction. And well, if you examine it a little bit more closely, what you'll see that is in Genesis chapter 1, we literally have a summary of the creation by day. So on day one, God did X. On day two, God did Y, and so forth, listing everything that was done on each day of creation. And chronologically, that was the order of creation. And so, for instance, you'll see, you know, birds, cattle, man and woman, which day they were created. All of that summarized very well in chapter one. And then when you get to Genesis chapter two, you know, even though it talks about the creation of man before it does the cattle and birds and so forth. It's not a chronological order. So in other words, as I mentioned, Genesis 1 gives us an overall summary of the creation. Genesis 2 gives us some additional detail about the creation. It talks about the law regarding what Adam and Eve could and could not eat. It gives us the reason for God creating woman. And it's not meant to be a chronological account like Genesis chapter 1. So anyhow, that that's just why, once again, it, it's not really a contradiction. You just have to understand, you know, what's being talked about in those two chapters. And, and so anyhow, that's the first one. Jeff, over to you. All right. Second one. Uh, is killing wrong? Exodus 20, verse 13, God says not to do it. But in Genesis 6, uh, verses 5 through 7, with the great flood, God did it. And in Exodus 21, 12 through 25, God commanded others to do it. So is killing wrong? One passage says it is wrong. Another passage says it's okay. Relatively uh, straightforward response. Well, you have to recognize the difference between what even today we would call justified killing, as in like capital punishment, versus unjustified killing, which is what today we would term murder. So again, it depends on the context uh, and bringing you know, two verses or two passages together, so they complement one another, not contradict one another. Brian? Yeah, the next one also comes from the Old Testament. If Moses wrote Deuteronomy, how could he write about his own death? Seems to be a contradiction, right? So, you know, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness. And if you you know, read various opinions of scholars 
almost universally, everyone will say, yeah, Moses was the author of Deuteronomy. And so when you think about that, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 34, it gives us details about Moses's death. Well, then people might logically say, well, A, is that a contradiction? Or B, how could this be, right? Did he write this after his death? Well, there's a couple of explanations. You know, the first one is really centers around, you know, perhaps that particular section was completed by Joshua. And then the second one is that, you know, maybe Moses didn't write everything, that it was a combination of men, that he did speak these words, but somebody else actually documented them. And in fact, when you go through the Bible, sometimes this is the case where, you know, a certain statement or statements were made by one person and it was documented by another. I think ultimately, though, you know, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, all scripture is given by God. And so ultimately, God approved what was written. And if you accept that truth, that everything we have in the scriptures, whether it's Old or New Testament, was written by God or approved by God and revealed by the Holy Spirit, then it doesn't really matter who wrote it, right? And we could sort of split hairs on that, Jeff, but, you know, ultimately, we should be confident that it is God's word. Good points. So I also have one from the Old Testament, and it involves numbers, uh, different numbers. How many horsemen did David capture from the king of Zobah? Now, our listeners may go, what? Where's that? Well, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, uh, it records there that 1,700 horsemen David captured from uh, the, the other king. However, if you go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 18, which is a parallel passage, verse 4, there it says 7,000 horsemen, not 1,700. Well, obviously, 7,000 and 1,700 are two different numbers, so obviously this is an error, contradiction. Well, not necessarily. And this is where we get into a very interesting aspect of Scripture, and that's related to the fact that we don't have the original manuscripts. They've long since decayed to dust. That we have a copy or a copy of a copy of a copy, etc., and that, you know, although the original manuscripts, as you said, were inspired, approved by God, that the subsequent, you know, copying was done by men. And at least in the case of Hebrew and the way they wrote numbers, you can get a fairly significant difference in numbers by just a very slight variation of the Hebrew word. And in fact, I, I don't know that much about Hebrew. But I often equate it to like modern day Arabic uh, for our listeners who might be familiar with the, the Arabic language that has these very, you know, from an, from our English perspective, very interesting little, you know, swirls and slight, you know, variations in the formation of the letters, which to our untrained eyes just looks like gibberish. But to someone who understands Arabic, you know, they understand, you know, the very subtle little um pen strokes if you will evidently hebrew is that way and so just you know a slight variation in the way the letter was formed or with some wear over time like you know rubbing of, of the manuscript and some of the letters starting to fade you know copyists could perhaps uh have an uh an, an, commit an error if you will uh, of making that copy and making it just slightly different or leaving out a little jot or tittle in fact jesus even uses those terms and accidentally, you know, transform the number. Key point being, however, even though copyists, you know, from time to time, admittedly have made some errors in their copy, and the good news is we have all different kinds of manuscripts where we can sort of detect these errors. And honestly, in vast majority of the cases, you know, 80, 90 plus percent, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't involve, you know, things like doctrine. In this particular case, you know, number of horsemen, you can see the two different passages, yeah, slight difference, likely from a potential copyist error. And that's a, we'll mention a little bit later, uh, is a source for a lot of these quote-unquote alleged contradictions, right? Yeah, and I think the key point you made there is that it doesn't involve doctrine, right? And, and exactly. that's important. Okay, how about the next alleged contradiction where 
Some will ask, who encouraged David to number or take a census of the Israelites? Now, they ask that question because depending on if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 24 versus 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it appears to be a contradiction, especially depending on the translation. So let me go ahead and read both of those. The first is in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1, where it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, if we go over to a different account, and that's in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. Here it says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So 2 Samuel chapter 24 gives the impression that God moved David to take the census, which was sinful. 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1, Satan provoked David to do it. So what's the explanation? And the good news is there is definitely a plausible explanation. So let's first consider what we know about Satan and the Lord, and also consider the different translation of these sections of Scripture and how they can convey a different meaning depending on which translation that you take a look at. First, we know that Satan tempts man to do evil, including Jesus when he was a man on this earth. We see that over in Matthew chapter 4. We also know in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that the devil is uh, called a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. We also know that God does not tempt mankind and certainly does not move him to do evil. And we read about that over in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, where it says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So we certainly can't attribute... Uh, the fact that David chose to take a census because God moved him to do so. Now, we know based on other passages that God did not approve of this census. And we see that, for instance, over in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 7, because it says that David felt guilty because he knew he sinned. Uh, over in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10, notice here what it says, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So even beyond this, we see in the verses that follow this passage that God gave David a choice of punishments, which further proves that David sinned and that God did not approve of what he did. Um, you know, it's also important to note that anytime there was a census in Israel, it was commanded by the Lord and it was not something that man was able to do on his own. And we see that, for instance, in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and also Numbers chapter 26, verses 1 through 4. So the final important consideration here is to realize that the English translations we have today were translated from Hebrew, and the translators differed in how they felt 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 should be translated. So here are some examples of three different translations to help illustrate this point. If you're using the English Standard Version, and you go over to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and verse 1, you'll notice it reads, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. If you look in the New American Standard, the same verse says, Now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. And then finally, if you look in Young's literal translation, this verse says, And the anger of Jehovah addeth to burn against Israel, and an adversary moveth David about them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the first translation gives the impression that God moved David to take the census. The second translation, the New American Standard, gives the impression that anger moved David. And the third, Young's literal translation, gives the impression that an adversary, like Satan, moved David to take the census. So based on the translation, we get a very different impression of the verse. And it just shows you, Jeff, the challenges, right, that the translators had in properly translating what the Bibles say that we use today. So 
Given the truth we know about God's nature, given the truth we know about Satan's power to tempt and man being allowed to freely do what he would like, it is reasonable to conclude that Satan tempted David to take a census. God allowed David to be tempted and to give in to this temptation as a free moral agent, and David succumbed to the temptation and chose to sin by giving the order to conduct the census. Now, as we've talked about and as the scriptures clearly say, you know, this decision was sinful and God punished him and Israel as a result. So, you know, really, if you think about it, this is consistent with our own lives today where we are also tempted to sin. But God has given us a wonderful promise to never allow us to be tempted above what we are able to bear. And he gives us the power to resist the temptation if we are willing to find the way of escape. And we are told this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, where it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So Jeff, anyhow, link the answer, but just wanted to take a little time to help others understand why there is this alleged discrepancy between these two passages. Right. Well, and I like you pointing to potentially using different translations uh, that can help resolve alleged contradictions, as well as bringing other passages you know, into the equation that talk in this particular case about the nature of God, the nature of Satan. And so if you look at the composite, not only the two passages that disagree with one another, but other passages as a whole, you can often resolve the alleged contradiction with some kind of reason or explanation that's uh, you know both reasonable and plausible. So now I'm going to switch gears real quick uh, from the Old Testament to the New. And likewise, there's a lot of alleged contradictions in the New Testament. Uh, for instance, regarding Jesus and his genealogy or his family tree, some people might ask, well, who was his father's father? Well, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, the answer would be Jacob. If you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23, starting, the answer would be uh, Heli or Halai, uh, however you pronounce that. Uh, and if you basically compare those two genealogies, according to Matthew and according to Luke, they're different. Okay, so which one is right? That's what the allegation would be. You know, one is right, the other's wrong, or maybe they're both wrong. They're different, so hence they're wrong. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper. Uh, Matthew, apparently based on his targeted audience of Jews, according to Jewish custom, he traces Jesus' lineage uh, basically through the males, uh, from Abraham through David to his earthly father, Joseph. Actually, technically, that would be his uh, adoptive, uh, adoptive father. Luke, on the other hand, Reverses the order and goes back into history, uh, traces Jesus' lineage back to Adam. And some of the differences in the list, particularly with Jesus' you know, grandparents, great-grandparents, could be explained if Luke was recording Mary's lineage and not Joseph's. And so again, if you look at the um, sometimes the author and the intended audience, of a particular passage, you know, coupled with, you know, uh, the customs of the time, you know, Jewish custom, for instance, uh, along with some other, you know, potentially reasonable explanations, you can resolve, you know, this contra alleged contradiction uh, as well as others. Brian? Yeah, another one here from the New Testament is what happened after Jesus was born. This comes from the discussion in Matthew where it says the family of Jesus fled to Egypt to escape Herod's orders and remained there for quite a while. So you might remember Herod ordered all children to and under to be uh, murdered, if you will, so that he could hopefully capture Jesus and all that and kill him as the promised Messiah. Uh, but yet if you look in Luke's account, it says that his family left Bethlehem after the law was fulfilled and went to Nazareth. So when you look at the difference between Matthew and Luke, it appears that there is a difference of a couple of years between the two Gospels. So that will lead some to ask, well, what happened? When did Jesus go to Egypt? You know, why, why does there appear to be this contradiction? Well, if you look, you know, Matthew gives more details than Luke does. 
you know, Luke gives us a summary and not a detailed account of like every step that occurred like Matthew did. And so it's not a contradiction, but what Luke's giving us is just a broad summary of what occurred. And he chose not to give us, once again, this detailed account that would fill in the gaps, if you will, if he had given that detailed account like Matthew. You know, it's also important to understand that, you know, the Gospels were written by different men to different audiences, and some of the information in one Gospel may be more thoroughly presented than in other Gospels. So different audience, different message in some, uh, to some extent. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they all present the facts in the same manner or to the same thorough detail. Uh, so we just have to be careful not to assume because each one doesn't present the same level of thorough detail that there is a contradiction. Right. And, and as we'll point out when we get into our next section, Brian, you know, that's a common occurrence even in today. Uh, with, you know, various writers, various eyewitnesses, etc. But we'll, I'll, I'll kind of save that for, again, the next section. Uh, here's one for you. How many demon-possessed men were living in the tombs in the country of the Gadarenes? Matthew 8 says there were two. Mark 5 and Luke 8 says there was one. An obvious contradiction, right? Well, not necessarily. Given the fact that two have been mentioned, probably the answer to the truth is there were two. But the reason Mark and Luke mentioned only one was potentially because one was more uh, outspoken, more notable, maybe spoke for both of them, more difficult to manage, etc. So Mark and Luke decided to focus on the one, whereas Matthew recording more the fact of, yeah, in actuality, there were two. So again, a way of relatively reasonably resolving the alleged contradiction. Brian? The next one is about Jesus when he was crucified. Some will say, well, when was Jesus crucified? Like at what hour? Because Matthew, Luke, and John say that it's the sixth hour, and Mark says that it was the third hour. And so this discrepancy can really be cleared up by understanding the difference between the way the Jews and the Romans counted time. So, you know, daybreak versus midnight or midday, for instance, the Jews divided their day into 12 equal parts from sunrise to sunset. And so their third hour of the day would have been about nine o'clock in the morning. And so, you know, when you see the difference or understand, I should say, the difference between how the Jews calculated their time and the Romans, you can see that there's actually not a discrepancy at all, but just the way they actually categorize the time of day. Yep, good point. And again, that kind of comes back to helping uh, or a knowledge of the culture or the customs helps to resolve the alleged discrepancy. Definitely, yep. And finally, the, the last example from the New Testament, how did Judas Iscariot die? Well, if you read Matthew 27, 5, he committed suicide by hanging himself. If you read Acts 1, verse 8 and verse 19, he tripped and fell and somehow lacerated his midsection, and his bowels came out. Well, how did he die? Two different uh, accounts of the same event. They're different, hence they're wrong. Or at least one or both are wrong. Well, not true. Um, in fact, it should be relatively easy to envision a scenario where Judas, Judas goes out, hangs himself you know, from a tree, some time passes, Something happens with the branch or the rope or the whatever, and eventually the corpse, you know, falls and, you know, onto the you know ground or rocks below uh, and, you know, again, lacerates his midsection, etc. So not contradictory, but complementary uh, when you properly or when you properly harmonize uh, both passages. So there you go, Brian, uh, fire from the old, fire from the new, and, and really honestly, kind of a, a sampling. And we've kind of hinted at some of the reasons why people think they are alleged contradictions. That's right. And as you mentioned also earlier, it just goes to show you why you have to do a little bit of digging, not just not accept things at face value. More often than not, there's a valid reason. And so now let's shift gears and talk a little bit about some of the sources of alleged contradictions. So there are nine here, uh, sort of common sources that, and there, there could certainly be more, I'm sure, but, but these are just nine 
that seem to surface the most, right, Jeff? Right. Uh, potential sources of alleged uh, contradictions. So the first one is, you know, misreading the text or failing to understand the context. And, you know, we had a podcast on how to properly study the Bible. And one of the things that you may have heard us say in that podcast is that it's so important to understand different types of context, like the immediate context, which would be the context right around that particular verse that people might be alleging that there's a contradiction to understand. Uh, you alluded to the remote context, right, Jeff, where you have to harmonize it with other passages that teach something similar. So, you know, once again, one of the common sources of errors and contradictions is misreading the text or failing to understand the context. So one example I'll give here is in John 3.16, where Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if you were just to look at that one single passage, and certainly people in the religious world today will try to use this passage to say that all you need to do is believe, that baptism isn't required for salvation. Well, if you look at the context, Jesus actually refers to baptism in verse 5 of John 3 when he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's an allusion to baptism. And now when he gets to verse 16, in this particular section, he is talking about belief versus non-belief. How do we know that? Well, if you look in verse 18, he says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So it's important to consider, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about belief versus non-belief. And if you don't have belief, then you're certainly not going to continue on and do things like be baptized, right? So once again, just understanding Jesus is simply talking about belief. The next one is a misunderstanding of the use or definition of Hebrew or Greek words. And a good example of this is baptism. You know, a typical dictionary definition will include sprinkling, maybe even pouring uh, as to be considered baptism. Whereas when you look at the Greek word, it means immersion or burial in water. And that makes sense because if you look in Romans chapter 6, we're taught here that when we are baptized, it is in the likeness of the death of Jesus. So just like he did die and was buried and arose, well, in a similar manner, spiritually, when we are baptized, we die to sin, we are buried in baptism, and we arise to walk in newness of life. So we are, in essence, mimicking Jesus' physical death, burial, and resurrection with our own spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. And the third one here, and then I'll turn it over to you, Jeff, one common uh, source of contradictions or alleged contradictions are not understanding that different authors emphasize different details regarding an event. And I just kind of spoke to that when we were talking about when did Jesus and his family go to Egypt. Matthew emphasizing one thing, uh, you know, compared to Mark, who emphasized, or Luke, I guess I should say in this particular case, right, emphasized something completely different. So we just have to understand uh, what, what happens in those. Right. And very similar to that, uh, what I've got number four, one author may be summarizing something or paraphrasing what someone said, while another author is giving details. So, as you said, you know, very similar to what we see with you know Luke's account, where he's just kind of summarizing what's going on, whereas Matthew you know inserts you know a year and a half's worth of details in between. And and honestly, this and some of the other ones I'll mention just in a few moments, you know, it's really no different than what happens today. You know, with TV reporters, investigative journalists, whatever the case may be, you know, depending upon the audience that the reporter or the journalist is, you know, talking to or trying to reach, and depending upon the you know the key points they want to make, some will give you a summary of what happened in a particular event, and others will want to dive into some of the details. It's not contradictory; it's just complementary. Uh, very similar, number five. Uh, an author may describe a series of events without regard to a strict chronological order. Meaning, uh, and I'm reading a little bit of this in, in the Old Testament, in some of the Genesis accounts, where it's like, you know, we introduce, you know, a family, 
And then all of a sudden, the narrative will focus on one of the sons and, and talk about his descendants, you know, multi-generations. And then we'll come back to one of the other sons and, and follow them for multiple generations. And honestly, you know, that's, again, things, quote unquote, out of chronological order, an alleged contradiction when that's not really the case. In fact, again, even today with various, you know, movies, books, whatever, we often have what are called flashbacks or sometimes flash forwards or foreshadowing, etc., where the story, even with modern, you know, movies and stories or, or, you know, narrative accounts, even of factual events, sometimes people will go out of chronological order to go, you know, probe a particular aspect and then come back to the main story, so to speak. And, you know, people view that's that's okay. That's legitimate. Uh, when they see that in the Bible, they go, oops, contradiction. Yeah, not quite being consistent there, are they? And finally, which we kind of saw a little bit with uh, Luke and Matthew and, and the birth of Jesus, number six, some authors are choosing to emphasize certain events while ignoring others. Yeah. Again, very similar, no different today. You know, with various authors writing books today, you know, they'll focus on key events relative to whatever key perspective, focus, or story they're trying to portray, and they'll ignore other things. Not an alleged contradiction with them, not an alleged contradiction with the Bible. Brian? Number seven, the use of approximate numbers. So, you know, some writers may give an exact number, and others give a more general or approximate number. So that could be, uh, you know, pretty, or we can easily see, right, why there would be a discrepancy between two different sections of Scripture. The next one, scribal errors. And you touched on this, Jeff, where you have, you know, uninspired copyists that can make a mistake. They might alter a letter. They might drop a word or phrase accidentally. Uh, copying, a, for instance, a marginal note in the body of the text. There are, you know, several different ways that these men who copied the text could just make an error. And so, you know, oftentimes what scholars would do is compare these ancient manuscripts. And if they saw it was one way and let's say two or three of them, and it wasn't in this third or fourth one, then they would really gather that the, there was just a scribal error. And so it wasn't some, you know, a purposeful attempt to change the truth or be some discrepancy which proves that the Bible can't be relied on. It was just simply an error. And kind of like you touched on earlier, Jeff, I mean, we see that in our own life. I remember back in the days when I used a typewriter, you know, and you were almost guaranteed to make some kind of error, you know, and, and anyways, it, it just can happen. All right, uh, the, the last one here is that, that there's some other reasonable and plausible explanation. So sometimes people fail to consider that there is a plausible explanation. And we gave you some examples, and you kind of also touched on this, Jeff, where when we look at modern writing today, uh, most people will accept that, you know, in modern writing, uh, you know, there's a reasonable explanation or a plausible explanation, and so they don't impugn the author. And one example beyond what we gave earlier that kind of illustrates this is, you know, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, he saw light and heard a voice. But there is a, once again, a discrepancy if you look at Acts chapter 9 versus Acts chapter 22 regarding did those who were with him hear the voice or did they not? And so, you know, if you don't consider the fact that there could be a plausible or reasonable explanation by simply looking at the Greek, then you may think there's a contradiction here. Although, you know, when you look at the Greek word that's used uh, as it relates to hearing this voice or hearing a sound, it has two distinct meanings to perceive sound and understand so for instance you know if they heard something but did not understand what was being said so like if you and i are on a road and we're walking along and we hear somebody say something in a foreign language we hear it but we don't understand what's being said uh, paul on the other hand let's say he knew that foreign language he heard and he understood what was being said and so you know, if you look at it that way, there is no contradiction. I'm not saying that Paul actually heard a foreign language, but I am just illustrating the, the difference between hearing versus hearing and understanding. And so we see that, you know, also we kind of touched on different translations and how, 
uh, you know, some of the scholars chose to interpret a specific word or a section of scripture may have varied a little bit. You know, these are not inspired men. They did the best they could to translate it correctly, but it may convey a different meaning. Just like did, you know, God versus Satan compel David to take a census, right? That example. Yep. Good points. Thank you, Brian. And I think the that last point you were making about there are reasonable and plausible explanations. I think that merits just a little bit of highlighting. And certainly at first glance, you know, there's a number of passages, you know, hundreds of passages that on the surface can appear to be saying contradictory, conflicting things. But to be fair, if you have an interest and a somewhat unbiased attitude, you can, in these cases, dig a little bit deeper and find a, a plausible, reasonable explanation that not only explains away the contradiction, but in reality can also build up your faith and confidence in the Bible as God's trustworthy and inspired word. On the other hand, I might mention, if you approach the Bible from a skeptical perspective, atheist, agnostic, fault-finding perspective, you will, quote-unquote, find contradictions all over the place that will sort of self-validate your bias. Not that they really are contradictions, but you could view them as contradictions, and especially if you don't want to dig into and find a, you know, a reasonable explanation when in cases there, there are. And so in some ways, Brian, it often comes back to the Bible reader and what kind of bias they bring with them as they're reading scripture. Any other thoughts, Brian? Yeah, that's exactly right. I appreciate those points because, uh, you know, this is another thing that we talk about and how to properly study the Bible. And that is be careful not to bring in your preconceived notions or be careful not to try and prove or disprove some of your ideas by twisting or misunderstanding scripture, right? So anyhow, a lot of danger there if we're not careful. Exactly. So that kind of brings us, Brian, to the last major section of our podcast today, and that's how should we handle alleged contradictions? Meaning, you know, you never can tell when you're going to encounter these things. And I say when, not if. You will encounter these things, whether in discussion with a relative or a friend or coworker or a neighbor, or maybe something you, you know, hear on the TV or see on the internet you know, well beyond the, the sampling we've given you today. Again, there's there's hundreds of alleged contradictions that are out there. We've only just scratched the surface. What do you do if you, you know, hit one that we didn't talk about today? And that's what this last section is. So, Brian, you want to go ahead and start us off on some uh, guidelines or uh, uh, suggestions? Yeah, sure. Um, the first one is, you know, just avoid taking simplistic or extreme positions. Because if you do so, you may end up eating your words, as we like to say in our culture. And so, you know, for instance, some might say, the Bible we have is absolutely perfect. It has no errors at all. Well, that, that's not really a position you want to take, right? Because as we discussed earlier, there are copyists and manuscript errors. You know, ultimately, it records the words of, you know, uninspired men. And so in other words, those who translated the Bible, right, were uninspired. So we don't want to assume that they were flawless in how they, for instance, translated the Bible. Another quote, uh, or another statement, I should say, that somebody might say is that you just have to accept it as a matter of faith, a blind faith, check your brain at the door kind of faith. Well, God created us as beings with intelligence, with curiosity, and with reasoning. You know, he has given us the ability to discern between right and wrong and to draw reasonable conclusions and so forth. So he expects us to have a firm conviction based on the available evidence that he provides in his word. So, you know, it's perfectly natural and expected that people ask for some type of evidence, especially considering the kinds of claims made by Christians. So baptism is a good example, or you know, somebody says, well, prove to me that I need to be baptized. Okay, well, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Let's look at Acts chapter 22, verse 16, and so forth. So you want to be able to provide them with that proof. Now, over in John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, here it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So it gives us the reason why what we have in the Bible was written so that ultimately we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that's why God has provided us with much evidence, much facts, if you will, regarding that. Jeff? And that indeed, you know, to that point that we, you know, we shouldn't fear these alleged contradictions when we encounter them. We should just recognize that, you know, there are a lot of people out there, admittedly, they're just trying to find fault with the Bible, and over the years they've amassed a large number of these things, and that we shouldn't you know, just blindly say, well, they're all wrong, or fear them, or ignore them, whatever. That we should, with confidence, you know, look into them uh, and, and realize that in cases, as we've said, that there's, there's reasonable evidence. You just have to kind of dig a little bit deeper. You know, speaking of which, here's another suggestion. Do not accept just what people claim are contradictions. Don't accept any sort of vague generalities or sweeping generalities if if someone says yeah the bible's full of contradictions okay could you give me some specifics meaning you know try try to pin the person down if that if you're interacting with someone to have them you know cite because you know you can't deal with generalities you really got to go to the specifics each specific one because often the explanation is it might be specific to that particular uh alleged contradiction the other thing that might be useful uh, is to understand where the person is coming from or their motivation or their, their agenda, so to speak, uh, to understand more where they're coming from in terms of this line of questioning or, or the assertion they're making. The other thing I might mention is, uh, in addition to avoiding uh, generalities and demanding specifics, is don't jump around. You know, I know there's, you know, some people, some situations where we want to go, well, well, you know, Bible contradicts this and the, the Bible contradictions over there. And then, oh, the, the Bible's wrong in this area and the Bible's wrong in that area. It's like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. You know, don't jump around from one to another. Again, focus on each one, dot, you know, dig into a little bit more, understand, as Brian said earlier, the immediate context, the remote context, the definition of words, cultural context, et cetera, and try to deal with one at a time to kind of stay focused as opposed to just, you know, the shotgun approach. Brian? Yeah, I really appreciate those points, you know, especially the one about sweeping generalities. You know, all too often, false religions today will claim that their creeds exist because, well, the Bible's been corrupted by men. And to your point, say, okay, well, tell me where. You know, give me a specific example of where the Bible has been corrupted. It said one thing over in this age, and it says something different now. What you'll find is that they really can't, right? Or they'll have something that can easily be shown not to be true by just looking at the scriptures. Another key principle is, you know, do not think that you have to give a perfect answer. Like if somebody asks a question, well, you don't want to give an answer unless it's a perfect answer. You know, as we talked about, you, you should be able to give reasonable, plausible answers, and that will do just fine. Because in some cases, we don't know. But that doesn't necessarily mean that because there's a scribal error or that, you know, your plausible explanation could be um, somebody else may have a different plausible explanation as long as it doesn't affect doctrine and what the Bible teaches us as foundational principles, uh, then don't worry about giving that perfect answer. And then also, you know, don't feel like you need to answer something immediately. Jeff, this has come up in my life, I'm sure in all of our lives, right, as we study with people. Sometimes people will ask you a question. And even though you might know the answer, you might want to support that with scripture that may not immediately come to mind. So just tell them, hey, you know what? Let me go find some passages and then let's uh, reconvene and, and we'll get you the answer and we'll study it together. Uh, that's perfectly fine. And then, you know, take advantage of the resources at your disposal. We live in a wonderful age now where there are Bible dictionaries and commentaries and all different sources of scholarly material for free. And, you know, we have a section on our website, BibleQuestions.org, where we give you links out to free resources so that you can use these tools to help you better understand. Yep, Brian. Yeah, very good suggestions. So as we kind of start to bring the, uh, today's podcast to a close, any other uh, closing thoughts before I uh, make some suggestions on uh, website material? Yeah, just one final thing I'd like to just uh, refresh our listeners on that we touched on early on the podcast, and that is, you know, please realize that 
Some people want to utilize these supposed contradictions in the Bible as a reason why they should not follow the Bible or, you know, so that it justifies living how they would like to live, even justifies the religion that they're a part of. And so, you know, it's just important to realize that none of the supposed contradictions change the fundamental principles of the truth found in the Bible. And I'm not saying people couldn't present some supposed contradictions that change doctrine in the Bible. But what you'll find is, Jeff, I guess most of these that are brought up, right, are just sort of nitpicky things, I guess for lack of a better term, and they don't necessarily change the foundation of truth. So we just want to be aware of that. Good points. And so for our listeners, like we always do in previous podcasts, we're going to do in this podcast as well. We would certainly encourage you to you know, further study this kind of topic. We do have a lot of useful material at our website at biblequestions.org uh, for alleged contradictions, how to study the Bible, etc. Uh, specifically under the topics menu item under C for Christian evidences, uh, things that make it reasonable to believe that the Bible is indeed trustworthy, reliable, etc. Uh, despite having scribal errors and different translations, etc. Uh, under topics B for Bible origins, which deals a little bit with uh, manuscript evidence, scribal errors, etc. Uh, B for Bible study, with about 40 articles, uh, quite a bit of material under B for Bible study, uh, on how to uh, approach the Bible in a thoughtful way and how to study it and look at different aspects of it in terms of context, definitions of words, the culture, etc., as helpful aids to uh, resolve some of these alleged contradictions. Uh, we also have uh, a couple of uh, online studies, which Brian happens to administer. Thank you, Brian. Uh, under the lessons uh, menu item, lessons, how to study, uh, one of them is interpreting the Bible, which is a, a pretty extensive online study that, that Brian guides you through. Uh, 23 lessons uh, on you know how to better study the Bible, how to understand what the Bible is saying, how to help resolve some of these alleged contradictions, etc. And the last thing I'll mention before we sign off, we have a uh, reference or a link, if you will, to a website that we've found out there on the internet. It's a fairly complex address that lists not only 100 alleged contradictions, but it very carefully goes through and answers every single one of them by providing a reasonable explanation, very similar to what we've had today. If that kind of a resource uh, you might find useful, please submit a question to the website, uh, and I'd be happy to forward the, uh, the link to you. As always, please visit our website. Please look at the material where, you, especially if you find scripture references, please definitely study you know, what the Bible has to say. And as always, we would encourage you to apply it to whatever you know, conversations you might have with those you encounter, as well as whatever kind of you know, alleged contradictions you, you know, come across on your own, all of which can be used to build and establish your faith in the Bible and ultimately in God. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.